it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brain Kill Me Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by the CEO of Ford. He's come out with the lightning. Uh, I was able to visit with him, part of my series, What Made America Great. We talk about the history of Ford, Henry Ford on down. Uh, believe it or not, the electric car and the gas car invented at the same time. We chose gas, uh, obviously. And now President Biden seems to have chosen electric. Too bad we need fossil fuels. But I digress. Jim Farley. He actually is the cousin of Chris Farley. He's the CEO of Ford. And with me in studio is uh, Congressman, House Minority Whip, for now minority, uh, Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Uh, Congressman, great to see you. Uh, Brian, it's great to be with you and be here in the studio with you. I know. It's very rare. So here are the big three things I think everybody needs to know. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Turkey lifting its veto on Finland and Sweden's NATO ambitions. The traditionally neutral Nordic countries now one step closer to joining the Western Military Alliance. Yeah, there you go. That was the great Ainsley Earhart telling us about this news that Russia did not want to hear. Finland and Sweden are in. Other developments at NATO will bring you up to date on the latest as the Allies pledge to continue to give support to Ukraine, who's still being blitzed. Number two. Are we ready to fire Kathy Hochul? This November, in the state of New York, one-party rule will end. Kathy Hochul will get fired. We will restore balance and common sense to Albany again. There you go. Lee Zeldin wins the Republican nomination. As you know, he will take on Kathy Hochul, who has not won any election. She was lieutenant governor. To that, to the disgrace, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, Joe? Your party may be over. I mean over you. As they are looking at how you have handled the crises after crises and the policies and more. Plus, we also go over the most intriguing primary of the day. Number one. These people who lost their lives, they did so because President Biden has uh, empowered and emboldened the cartels to do exactly uh, what you saw happen. That was uh, Governor Greg Abbott. He is beside himself. It took a major tragedy for the president to acknowledge that the border is out of control. 51 dead in a tractor trailer. Essentially, they burned alive. The problem for the president, with the attention comes the scrutiny, and I say he's indirectly responsible for every loss of life. I've never seen any facet of our country so dismembered uh, and ignored as our border. And I don't think, Steve Scalise, uh, you can argue with me on that. No, and Biden set out day one— to open America's border, sent the signal. You saw caravans coming before he was sworn in. But he says, stay home. And yeah, and he I says, mean, don't come. And then the White House says, the border's closed. I mean, the lunacy of this, at the day of oh, 51 bodies being found in this 18 wheel. He finally commented. Every town is a border town now because Joe Biden opened the border. And what's worse is the drugs and fentanyl that are killing Americans. 100,000 Americans died last year from drug overdoses, primarily fentanyl coming across our open southern border. 
So what bothers me most, Congressman, is that this could be an area that they both get along. When you talk about enforcing the border, you want to talk about immigration policies, that's where the controversy is. But enforcing the border, it's how it was done, but we agree you have to enforce it. He does not enforce it. The vice president is supposed to be in charge of it. Mayork is not interested in doing it. And yet every day the Border Patrol is dealing with it. Yeah, and he put Vice President Kamala Harris in charge of it. She won't even go there. I've gone to the southern border and toured going to the Rio Grande. I embedded with the Border Patrol agents, and they'll tell you what's wrong. They're not allowed to do their jobs. They want to take on the drug cartels. They don't want this flow of thousands of people coming across bringing human trafficking, drugs. But they're not allowed to do their job because of what President Biden's done. So if you guys take the House— and not the Senate or whether you get the Senate or not. Is there anything you could do? Well, I can tell you we're going to be bringing a border security bill through the House. We will debate how to secure America's southern border. Bill Mayorkas, you might as well get him a parking spot. He's going to be testifying a whole lot, as will many other Biden officials, in open hearings where we can hold them accountable and get real answers. And then let's pass legislation through the House to show the country how to do it. Biden will have to answer. Would he sign or veto that bill? Let the Senate take it up. But I think the country is going to be getting more engaged in these things, whether it's, you know, our, we're going to bring legislation to lower gas prices, to have a sound energy policy and show the country how it can be done. So we're not just against what he's doing, which is bad. We're going to have a full agenda to show how to fix these problems that are facing our country. So it's going to be a real battle in politics yesterday. You yeah. know, Lee Zeldin Wells, four yeah, terms in the House. Him. He's going to be a great governor of New York. I was glad to see him win the primary last night. You would never have said that four years ago. Yeah, so what, does the Governor Yunkin show you a template how to win in a blue state? Yeah, and what Yunkin did is show all across the country what's happening. And, you know, you go back to 2010 when we flipped the House and fired Nancy Pelosi last time. The precursor to that was Virginia. That's the last time Virginia flipped from Democrat to Republican. It happened again this time. They almost flipped New Jersey. Remember, uh, just barely uh, did they almost have a Republican governor in the state of New Jersey. So for New Yorkers, it is very possible Lee Zeldin's a great candidate uh, Hochul's record is just as bad as Cuomo's. And you look at where the state is. They've defunded the police. Crime's out of control. All the things that people are angry about all around the country are happening here in New York. And I think Lee Zeldin's going to have a great opportunity to win and turn things around. The great balancer, many people think, on the left is Roe v. Wade. It's going to rally in local elections, especially people to say we have to keep abortion rights. Here's Governor Kathy Hochul, current governor of New York. Cut 12. No matter what the Supreme Court thinks they can do, New Yorkers, you are protected. Protected from concealed weapons. We're protected from politicians and judges trying to control women's bodies, resulting in government-mandated pregnancies. That's what they want to have. Abortion rights aren't going anywhere as long as I'm your governor. So that's something they're running on. Might it be an effective message when most polls show the American people did not want it overturned? Well, when you look at polls, New York is a great example of the radical left controlling policy, because here in the state of New York, after the Supreme Court ruling from last week, you can still murder a baby in this state after the baby's born alive and call that abortion. I think that's murder. I think that's crazy. But it's legal here in New York. That's how extreme they are. They want taxpayer funded abortion on demand up until after the baby's born alive. That's where the Democrat Party is. You want to talk about being out of touch with America. Over 80 percent of Americans don't agree with that. And that's New York's current law after the real ruling. Steve Scalise here, the House Minority Whip. Uh, Congressman, in Louisiana, how close are you guys to capacity in terms of you guys are known as an energy state? 
So how close are you to capacity right now? How much more can you do? There's a lot more that can be done, and you just start with the Gulf of Mexico. I represent Port Fouchon, which is the hub of deep water drilling in the Gulf of Mexico for for the entire nation. And if you look there, they can't even get permits. Biden hasn't issued a lease sale, even though the law mandates that he has to. The courts have said he's not in compliance. So he just changed the rules and said, we're not going to have lease sales anywhere, federal lands, onshore. And so you're underperforming right now in terms of what we could be doing. Uh, I was on a rig a few weeks ago. I take members out to a rig every year. We went to one of the largest producers in the Gulf, a rig that Shell owns that produces 130,000 barrels a day in the Gulf of Mexico. They can't even get permits to do seismic right now to go and expand that one rig. There's a lot of other opportunities to produce oil in the Gulf. President doesn't need to go fly to Saudi Arabia and beg them to produce oil. Macron even t- had to tell him that they don't have the capacity. Let's do it here. Yeah, it's not the best audio, but just to understand this, the dynamics. There's so much to this story. Emmanuel Macron says he called the UAE and called the Saudi Arabia. They can't pump anymore. I'm not kidding. This is not a movie that where they try to can where they try to consolidate uh, scenes in order to move a story along. This is happening. Cut 18. You, you, you predicted it for a while. Excuse me. Sorry to interrupt you. The Saudis can increase a little bit, but one or fifty or a little bit more, and they, they don't have huge capacities. Okay. 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 So Jay Sullivan says, careful, maybe we should step aside. We just say that they don't, they're basically at capacity to drill. And Congressman, I can't believe that he wouldn't be briefed ahead of time on this, even before he made the call. He doesn't go and visit the oil executives. We're one mile from the White House. He goes and visit the wind executives in the White House. And now he's getting this information on the fly at a G7. Yeah, Brian, American people are watching this. And when they're paying $5 a gallon at the pump and they watch what Joe Biden's done, he shut off American energy, shut off pipelines, won't issue permits. And then they see that he's going to go to Saudi Arabia 5,700 miles away. And Macron's got to be the one to tell him that the Emirates don't have it. Saudi doesn't have it. It's right here in America. We've got the best energy and we have the best standards. You want to lower carbon emissions, make it here. Everybody gets it. Joe Biden has deliberately said he wants to shut America down. I want to go back to Roe v. Wade because uh, Biden left, and a lot of people are upset, saying, why do you, you need to leave us a game plan to fight back? Not you could care about that, but this is a fight you're going to have on a daily basis. Women's rights in terms of babies' rights, that's pretty much the decision you have to make. So Elizabeth Warren comes up with this brainstorm. Why don't we set up tents and on federal land and build facilities on federal land like Yellowstone Park and have abortions? So Secretary Xavier Becerra was asked that. She's HHS. Cut 23. What I can tell you is that we are aware of a number of ideas and proposals, many of which we have been considering internally ourselves. Uh, We have made no decisions yet. We certainly would have conversation with the president to make sure we implement his directives to us in trying to protect women's reproductive health care services. But as I said, every option is on the table. Do you, do you see that happening in Louisiana on federal land if they start setting up tents and lean-tos and building facilities? Absolutely you- not, but it shows you how radical they are, Brian. They want taxpayer-funded abortion on demand. That's not where America is. You know, the Roe decision says let elected leaders make this decision, not judges. We want to protect life. Most Americans want to protect life. 
Uh, but if you look at where the radical Democrats are right now, you know, this lunatic, lunatic idea that you're going to on a, in a middle of Yellowstone National Park, you're going to have some kind of abortion clinic funded by taxpayers. Uh, go poll that, by the way, when they use their 80 percent numbers, I guarantee you 80 percent of Americans say that's the craziest idea. But that's where the Democrat Party is right now. All right. Well, Steve Scalise is in studio. One, uh, one more block and then he's got to get on with his life of legislating and hopefully work. Uh, his way to become the, the majority. Certainly, it's a lot more fun to be in the majority. You've been a both, lot right? A lot yeah, more. Okay. Uh, Kevin McCarthy would be the speaker in that in that circumstance, we would think. Uh, Jim Farley in about 10 minutes, but more with Congressman Steve Scalise in just a moment. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Do you think that you'll have President Biden come and campaign with you in that district? I, I intend to do the campaigning myself. I am the candidate. It's my name on the ballot. And I plan on um, engaging voters across our 11 localities, some of them new to me, some of them communities I've represented already. That is Abigail Spanberger, the Democratic congresswoman from Virginia, who's looked at a vulnerable seat. But why should I speculate when the experts here, Congressman Steve Scalise here, House Minority Whip, uh, we're lucky to have him in studio. If you're watching Fox Nation, you can see him streaming. So what is your take on, on her coming on Fox News to say she's not looking for Joe Biden to help her? Yeah, you know, it's funny watching some of these Democrats trying to distance themselves from Biden. Now. Like Tim Ryan, too. But, the, but then why have they been voting with Biden and Pelosi over 90 percent of Does the time? She? And yeah. And so, you know, was she going to invite Nancy Pelosi to Virginia to campaign with her because she's been voting with Pelosi about 90 percent of the time? You know, I was in Bangor, Maine yesterday and Bruce Poliquin's a great candidate running against Jared Golden. Golden votes with Pelosi over 80 percent of the time. I said, is he going to invite Nancy Pelosi to Bangor, Maine? I showed up in Maine to help Bruce. Is he going to invite Nancy to go and campaign for him since he votes with her all the time, even though that's not the values of Bangor, Maine? So we're going to see a lot of this in November uh, where they try to distance themselves from the people they've been voting with for the last two years to run the country in the ground. Now, we see Nancy Pelosi push. Is it Congresswoman now Flores's uh, daughter? Do you, have you seen the speaker push other kids? I, look, I don't know. I, I saw the video. Myra she pushed is, him. Myra's a wonderful person, and she was like, my daughter's not going to be pushed around. Uh, uh, she's such a great story, though. Myra, you know, again, 1871, Brian, that's the last time a Republican held that district on the border with Mexico. And the first ever woman, Republican or Democrat, born in Mexico to be elected to Congress. And she's a Republican who ran on border security. Her husband's a Border Patrol agent. She's a great new addition. She's going to have another tough race, and she's tough. She's going to win. Well, they, they are going to make tougher. And going against, is it Vincente Gonzalez? Yeah. Yeah, so he— He moved districts to run there. The thing is, she's more in looking, tune with the people of that district than he is. But he's somewhat moderate compared to the person um, closer to Cuellar well, than— Well, you know, and look, when you're voting with, with Nancy Pelosi over 80 90 percent of the time, you're not moderate. But they all call themselves moderate today because they're scared to death— of being associated with the AOC wing of the party, but they vote with AOC. It even gets more direct with Spanberger, uh, the former CIA uh, person, cut eight. Would you support Biden-Harris ticket in 2024? I'm looking squarely towards 2022 and the re-election ahead of me. 
working to make sure that voters across Virginia's 7th District know what okay, I've been doing. Okay, she had an opportunity, Congressman. <laughs> won't even support they the president to run. run. I mean, he's the sitting president of the United States, and you've got, I've seen polls, maybe 35% of Democrats want Joe Biden to be their nominee in 2024. It's an embarrassment. Look, Jimmy Carter might be the only guy who's a huge fan of Biden because Biden's making Jimmy Carter look better every day. The country's done with these Biden-Pelosi policies. The problem is all these Democrats that have been voting for those same bad policies to rack up gas prices and inflation and open the border, people are fed up with it, and we're going to win a lot of those seats. So January 6th, you guys elected not to put any Republican on there when Banks and Jim Jordan were rejected. So you have um, you have uh, you have Cheney and you have Kinzinger, who are Republicans but are adamant that they do not like President Trump and do not like the way he acted on January 6th. So Cassie Hutchinson, a 26-year-old former assistant intern in your office, uh, is made huge news yesterday by giving her account of what she saw as an assistant to Mark Meadows. Cut 26. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. So what's the problem with that story? Well, the problem is, as with everything with the January 6th politicized committee, is that there was nobody to counter any of it. And you're already hearing people tied to the Secret Service saying that didn't happen. And so the problem you have is, again, look, Leader McCarthy tried to put Jim Jordan and Jim Banks on the committee. Pelosi rejected it, which is unprecedented. I mean, typically in Congress, we have committees. Republicans pick the Republican members. Democrats pick the Democrat members. And when we tried to pick our members, Pelosi rejected them and said, you can't put them on. And then Pelosi picked Kinzinger and Cheney. And that had never happened before in the history of Congress. So just from backed out. And so ultimately, she said she wants to run it as a politicized committee. Uh, and they just want to put people on that hate Donald Trump. And I think the American people are fed up. Look, I've been in three states the last two days campaigning for great candidates that are going to flip seats. Never once did this come up. What comes up is high gas prices, the open border, inflation. People are fed up with the direction of the country, and that's what they're going to be voting on November 8th. Bobby Angle came out and said Hutchinson's testimony is incorrect. He says yeah. he wants to go testify. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to have him come Will testify. He? he should. But again, this is Pelosi's politicized committee to go after Trump. They've never shown any desire to get a fair, balanced account or just basic facts from people who were there. It's going to be a busy 139 days for you. It's going to be a sprint all the way through, but we're going to win. We're going to win the majority back and then work to save the country. Thanks, Congressman. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. So much talk about electric cars and how we have to transition, even though right now they're more expensive, they're hard to get. Rare earth is certainly a challenge in order to make the batteries in order to actually make the cars. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Brian Kilmeade here. I had a chance on What Made America Great to do five more specials about things about our past and separate us. And I did the history of the automobile. And one thing was great as I talked about, not about the history, but the future. And I was able to do it with Jim Farley. He is the Ford CEO. And yes, related to Chris Farley, he talked about the Ford Lightning, the new pickup, creating these electric vehicles and dealing with the government. 
Here's my interview with Jim Varley, CEO. So, Jim Varley, where are we right now? We are in the RevC Center where we're building our new F-150 Lightning, uh, 0 to 60 in 4 seconds, America's best-selling vehicle for 40 years. We're electrifying it. This is a brand-new site in the middle of the Rouge plant we built in 1928. It's been operating continuously. In the middle of that, we tore down a bunch of buildings and built our most sustainable zero-emission plant. What made you want to launch this three years ago? Uh, well, we had a very small group of very maverick people in the company. Uh, it's America's best-selling vehicle. Right. And we thought, what is more iconic than electrifying the F-150? And what is more American? Right. We're the biggest employer in our industry. This was the perfect vehicle to electrify. If you could have done this this quick yeah. and produced a product that is between forty dollars and $80,000, what took so long? <laughs> well, uh, we had to redesign the frame, fit all the batteries, do all the testing, design the frunk, uh, do all the testing to power your home for three days. It was a lot of engineering. Did you know that this could be done? Did, you, did uh, they no. convince you that it, that it could be done? Uh, <laughs> the first range estimate we got for this truck was 100 miles. We're now at 320. I mean, our, even our own engineering team was like, I don't know. I don't know. Right. And, uh, but we pushed through. We had a really maverick team who kept pushing, and um, things like ProPower on board, we only decided on a year ago to, to power a job site or your house with the truck. So we made a lot of quick decisions. When you start doing this and you start seeing the improvement, the other question from the outsiders is, is the country ready for it? Because a lot of truck drivers like the feeling of that V8 engine, yeah. put on the gas, and the reputation with electric cars no such thing as really electric trucks. Well, yeah. it's not going to have the power. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I'm one of those people. <laughs> and uh, we know them. We sell a million of these a year. Uh, the reality is the fastest zero to 60 we have is probably six seconds. This thing's four. So if you want to have a fun ride, just put your foot into this vehicle. It's one of the fastest vehicles we make. Why, why are you convinced, aside from the reservations that came in, why are you convinced that the American people would be open to this, where in years past they weren't? Well, I, the truck customers, we know better than anyone. Um, they were the first to adopt new technology in fishing and hunting. They have titanium reels. I mean, these are the most technology used in the vehicles done by truck customers. They have multiple laptops in their vehicle, doing work in their vehicle. They love technology. So we were very confident if we could bring a product that was no regrets, it was faster, it had 300 miles range, it had 10,000 pounds towing, that they would love the technology. And self-driving. Yes, yeah. That's, That's also new. Big deal. Big yeah. deal for us, actually. And we can over-the-air update that. In fact, we, you know, we can send software over-the-air to, to launch Blue Cruise. Now people, hands off the wheel for a lot of your commuting time, you, you know, you can do other things. In the front is like a trunk. Yes. So yes. that storage is important because obviously when you have a pickup truck, you got to get some protection, right? It is. And, uh, you know, t not only Tony Soprano, but lots of people would love that power frunk. It's fantastic. It's huge, 400 pounds. And we find a lot of our work customers work out of the front of their truck. You'll see measuring tape there, plugs, because people, even at night, we've lit it all. So you can be at a workspace or your home doing home improvement and use the front of your truck as a workspace and have lots of tools there, expensive tools. Did the government push you to do this? No way. No way. This is Ford. 
they do want you to get greener. They're sure. always putting regulations on sure. you. And still, this is the response from the government has been? Well, President Biden came here and drove it himself the day before we launched it. I mean, they're excited about what we're doing here. This is uh, hardworking Americans. My grandfather worked in this plant. And uh, so it's, it's fantastic. It's such, a, it's such an American story, what we're doing here. Good paying American jobs, the future of our industry, digital products over the air with software, um, new jobs. Uh, the batteries are built in Georgia. And this thing is a great truck. It's, look, it's a, it's a better truck than a lot of the trucks we make. What, what could you not like about this? So the manufacturer did have 500 jobs already with yes. this. I understand that. We know it's been 40 and 80,000. It goes over 320 miles per charge. Yes. The other thing that people worry about is the rare earth needed for the batteries. Sure. You got cobalt, you have yes. lithium, uh, you have uh, different types of things that we don't necessarily have in our backyard. It's true. How do you but we get, have to change that. How do you get it? And, and does that figure in when you decide to do this? Sure. Uh, you know, you have to start somewhere. Um, the first most important thing at Ford is to have really good principles of how those materials get to this country. The second thing is we have to localize. We have a lot of lithium in North America, the Salton Sea in California, ton of lithium. But we have to extract it and process it here and not send it to Asia. And also nickel. Yes, cobalt and rare earth are really important, but the real raw materials, the volume of raw materials we need to develop in this country are nickel and lithium. We have to start, um, and we're doing that. You'll see a lot of new news from Ford about commitments of mining locally. And that will require the government to give us faster, faster permitting and, and allow us to do this kind of work in the U.S. Did you relay that to the president? You betcha, because it's one of the biggest constraints about this journey. It's very, very difficult and time-consuming to get mining permits and processing permits. We have to change that in our country. Where is it? It's Where uh, is this stuff? Well, lithium, the biggest reserve in lithium in the United States is in the Salton Sea in California. It's incredible. It's just waiting there for us to, to get. Nickel is more complicated. That requires really very capital-intensive mining operations. Um, they're, in Cal they're in Canada, by the way. Um, and we should be able to do it in our country. We have the, we have the, the ab abundance of raw material, but we have to get busy. There's also in the Congo and in the Philippines. Yes. Uh, I know the Chinese are in a massive race to get it. What if, what, as a Ford company, an American car company, how involved are you and your team in trying to seal some of that up for your cars? Very involved. Actually, I'm so glad you brought this up because most people don't understand how important this is. We've lost our supply chain for solar and so many other important things in our country, and we have to get this back. The first step is to work with our JV technology battery partners because they're the ones who have the purchasing power today. Then once we make sure that they buy the mining and processing material through the right way, no corruption with the local government, you know, the right principles, then we start to build that uh, raw material capacity here in the United States. So we're learning, but then we have to move it to the U.S. And by the way, our partners want to move it here. Right. Uh, they want to bring manufacturing Yes. Here. I mean, look, for the example, the World Cup. Hey, you got the World Cup. That's great. Well, it turns out uh, Qatar hires slave labor in order to build mm. their stadiums. Is that the legacy of the world's most popular game? How concerned are you as the CEO of Ford that when you get your product, that you didn't get it off the backs of people that had no choice? 
You betcha. That's super important. Why? We're the largest employer in America, in our segment. We aren't the best-selling vehicle in North America or in the U.S., but we bet on the U.S. We bet on manufacturing in this country, right here in Michigan. People like my grandfather. So we have to do this, and it's really important for our independence as a country, moving from kind of energy independence like we've had to raw material independence. You also know what it's like when the government doesn't want to help you. And you have to tell the oil and gas people about that. Oh, we'll give you leases, we won't give you permits, we'll give you permits, we won't give you leases. Then we're going to sue you in court, we're going to hold this up. Are you able to use the leverage of saying, this is green, this is environmental friendly, I need some support here instead of some obstacles? So far we've had very good reception for these conversations. But we are starting. This is the first inning of a nine-inning game, right? So we'll see. But so far, a lot of support. But it's going to come down to permits, processing, you know, those kind of concrete actions to solve this problem. Absolutely. So you got 200000 rolling off. Yes. You hope to sell. Do you worry about cannibalizing yourself? That the F-150, they'll start taking away from sales of gas vehicles? We were. We were because we built the gas one right, right across the street here. Um, we were, but it actually didn't turn out that way. So far... 75% of the people haven't even owned a pickup truck before right. who are interested in Lightning. It's a very different customer. I also heard, too, layman here, but you need a, a bunch of chips for this car. Yes. Everybody knows yes. there's a problem with chips. Yes. How are you guys at Ford attacking this? Well, it's a, it's a big topic. What we're doing right now is prioritizing this production. The chips that we do get, we want to make sure that the Lightning, you know, there's about 3,000 chips in every Lightning. 3,000 yes. chips. Yeah, people don't understand it how technically advanced cars are these days. Uh, so, you know, that will protect these production. Uh, as a broader thing, we have to, again, localize, localize the chip supply. The government is de debating right now the CHIPS Act. We work with global foundries in upstate New York. We want to build our chips in the U.S. We're willing to invest at Ford. We need some help from the government to do that. Um, and we sure hope that we make progress over the next months to do that. Do the American people need to be explained that if we are bringing production back here in your product and other products, it's going to cost a little bit more, but that's the price of security and employment? Yeah. If you buy a Ford, you are buying, you are betting on a company that's bet on America. We make 100% of trucks in the U.S. No other brand in the U.S. can say that. None of our domestic competitors can say that. 100% of our trucks are made here. So, yes, we've always bet on the U.S. That's Ford. My grandfather worked here. Right, and, and now you're running the company. About this vehicle, take the test drive. I could not believe the size of that screen. Yeah. That was the bit, that's the size of most people's televisions. I think the, the, the UX or the uh, user experience on the technology is great on this vehicle. We developed with Mach-E. I think it'll surprise people. I personally think it's better than the Tesla, you know, how you interact. Uh, I think it's more usable, you know, we'll see. I think the most exciting thing is just... Stepping on the gas. <laughs> you know, it's an 8,000-pound full-size truck that goes four seconds, zero to 60. That just doesn't compute. It's like, and it's instant torque. Right. Uh, I think that driving experience is, is really something that's going to grab people's attention. Last question on this. If you could do it so quickly in three years and bring it to market in a matter of months, why did it take so long to do it? Why was this so long in coming? For the longest time, we heard it's going to be really tough to build an electric car. Car manufacturers can't make it make sense. You guys have it as a mission, and you're about to give it to the American people. 
what, what took so long, and then why was it produced so fast? Well, I mean, we started four years ago. I mean, this is not like Johnny-come-lately project. There was a small group of us who started working on this project four years ago. We had to redesign the frame, find the batteries, localize the production of the batteries, do all the testing, right. um, you know, submerge it in water. I mean, there were so many things we didn't know about, uh, but now we know, and we're going to speed up. We're going to get to 600,000 units of production uh, company-wide here in the next 12 months. So this is what we do. We are Ford Motor Company. We love building complicated things in America. Coming up next, more with Jim Farley. By the way, great personality, charismatic when we come back, the history of Ford and what it's meant to America. It's Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I, you know, Jim Farley's one of the CEOs, great personality. You know how he got the job? Also, it, it's kind of interesting that he drives a Tesla and he rides a, uh, drives an old 72 Bronco. I said, why a Tesla? He said, well, you know, I I just like to know what the competition's doing. I think that says a lot about his personality. So listen, uh, I did this story. I do this series called What Makes America Great. And I'm able to do these long interviews with these special people about the history of the automobile. So I wanted to bring some of my interview with Jim Farley to to all the listeners because I couldn't put it all in the feature. This is the history of Ford. Not only what it's meant to the world, but specifically what it's meant to America. This wonderful guy, this fantastic company. Here's my interview with Jim Farley. So, Jim, how important is the history here at Ford? It's everything. I mean, what, what makes Ford different is our principles. We're a family company. Bill Ford had this vision of, of electric vehicles many years ago. Now we're, we have a management team that's committed to that. Uh, you know, this is our family. Uh, we bet on America and working. Uh, these principles are part of our DNA. When the COVID happened... You know, no one asked us, no one had to ask us, like, the government to make ventilators. We just went out and did it. You know, that's, that's the DNA of our company. When you go see those black and white footage of this skinny uh, genius in Henry Ford, sure. what do you think about it? I think about my grandfather. You know, he worked for Mr. Ford. Back then, people would call it, I worked for the Fords. Knew the Ford. Yeah, and uh, he, you know, there was a whole generation of Depression-era people that, you know, appreciated this jo- these jobs in America. That's what I think of my grandfather bringing his lunch bucket in with my grandmother's sandwich in it. And the guy that says, I have an idea. I'll help the government out in World War I, have the government build some trenches and fill in this swamp, and then when they stop, I'll come over and I'll make this rouge, and I'll ma- have mass manufacturing of the Model yes. A. Yeah, I mean, he, this, this plant, I wish everyone in America could come to the rouge like you have. It, it's, it's part of our American story. Uh, Volkswagen, uh, Fiat, every Toyota, everyone copied this plant. And we've been operating here since 1928. Now we're making zero-emission vehicles in it. Yeah, I can see they're still working now. Yes. You can hear in the background. <laughs> you betcha. So when, when people talk about America and the car, what is the car meant to America, hence Henry Ford meant to America? Freedom. Freedom. It's a physical manifestation of our belief as a country. I can get in my car and go anywhere I want, and no one's going to tell me what to do. When you walk through the museum and see these cars and how they evolve, what do you think? I, I think about how, how special our company is, how, how important our company is, that we can, we can do what Henry Ford did with the Model T again. We've almost been waiting for... 100 years to do the Model T again. We have this chance to grow and 
add all this prosperity to Americans by bringing raw materials and battery production with these new digital products. That's what I think of as like we have a chance, you know, to build a new company. World War One, they needed somebody to chase submarines. Ford built a a uh, a, a sub to chase submarines. World War Two, you needed to shut down the car manufacturing, build jeeps or whatever yes. the government need. And then in the pandemic, the government needed ventilators. You did that. Yes. How much pride do you have in that? Totally. I mean, that's why many of us come to work at Ford for that sense of pride. Um, I worked at Toyota for 20 years. I came here for that reason. And also what the car has meant to people. Sure. I mean, it's it's our whole livelihood. Do you know how many people around the world would die to even drive an F-150? This is such an exotic vehicle. It's huge. You can live in it. Right. You know, uh, only in America. What's next? Uh, a whole fleet of new electric digital vehicles. All right. It's and just the beginning. Jetpacks one day? We're all going to fly? <laughs> is that going to happen? We'll figure out this one first. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Thank you. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. And Jim Farley did something kind of cool. I got his cell number. So when things get exciting again with electric cars, with the price of oil and gas, I can text him and maybe bring him back, and he'll get to see that personality once again. Thanks so much for listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget to go to What Made America Great on Fox Nation and listen and watch the whole series. It'll make your Fourth of July weekend even more special, more red, white, and blue. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, back at 48th and 6th after that great day on Long Island in West Sayville with the opening of the Michael uh, T. Murphy Seal uh, Navy Seal Museum. So it was a fantastic day. Thanks so much for uh, for taking it in. Uh, uh, we had these great guests there, some great Navy SEALs. Uh, and also the Murphy family, so it was a, a great day. I don't know if you've seen any video of it, but it's now a destination place, hopefully for anybody who cares about our military and our heritage. Uh, John Levine at the bottom of the hour, New York Post writer, has been all over the Hunter Biden story. It's getting more and more exposure. The president looks terrible. A voicemail with his voice on it from 2018 shows exactly uh, what Hunter, he knew exactly what Hunter Biden was up to. John Levine on where that investigation is going. Matt Continenti standing by on what Roe v. Wade means uh, for the Republicans' fortunes as well as primary day was yesterday. What do we now know? So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by LifeVac. Save a life in a choking emergency. Visit LifeVac.net to learn more and use code BK10 to save 10%. Number three. Turkey lifting its veto on Finland and Sweden's NATO ambitions. The traditionally neutral Nordic countries now one step closer to joining the Western Military Alliance. There you go. NATO. Welcome Finland and Sweden. Turkey doesn't even try to extort them. Uh, he actually, she, they finally give us the green light to do it, even though they're mostly in the Russian camp anyway. Why they're in there, I don't even know. But congratulations, that is a Russian disaster. Number two. Are we ready to fire Kathy Hochul? This November, in the state of New York, one party rule will end. Kathy Hochul will get fired. 
We will restore balance and common sense to Albany again. Yeah, that was Lee Zeldin, happy to get the Republican nomination in his big primary. But the bigger story is the national election. Joe, your party may be over, I mean over you, as they are looking at how you have handled the crises, the policies, and more. Number one. These people who lost their lives, they did so because President Biden has uh, empowered and emboldened the cartels to do exactly uh, what you saw happen. Wow. Uh, Greg Abbott weighing in. A mass tragedy so bad, even President Biden has to comment on the disaster at the border. 51 minimum dead in a tractor trailer without ventilation over 150 degrees. The problem for the president and the attention with the attention comes to the scrutiny and his policies are absolutely awful. Matt Continenti joins us now, senior fellow of American Enterprise Institute, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, author of the book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Matt, welcome back. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Matt, so you see the president, even overseas, commented on this disaster and this tractor trailer, the tragedy, but there's nothing that he, outside Afghanistan, there's nothing that he is more directly responsible for than the disaster on the border. Well, absolutely, Brian. And, and I think with inflation in the mix, too, you have named the three big reasons that uh, his approval rating is so low. I mean, the border um, emergency began pretty early on in his administration, and it's only gotten worse with time. And of course, you know, what Bi- Biden's signature move on to uh, to address the border was deputizing Vice President Harris, and, and she hasn't done anything at all. And so as the situation's been allowed to fester, we have uh, just uh, humanitarian tragedies like we see yesterday. Right. I just wondered uh, if you've ever seen anything like it. I mean, Barack Obama was known as deporter-in-chief because even though he wasn't as flagrant as Trump was, he was deporting people that come here. But now the word is you get here, you stay. If you come with your kids, you stay. There's 2 million people here if you add in unaccompanied minors. They're not enforcing Title 42. They're barely doing it. They're barely enforcing Remain in Mexico, even though a court has mandated it. They stopped building the wall. So, I mean, we seem to be invaded. And and let alone the drugs that are coming across. Do you think he pays the price for this on Election Day? Oh, he certainly will. I mean, it's a, it's a larger issue of just uh, negligence on Biden's part. I mean, you, you look at the president and you get a sense of that he doesn't know what's going on. Um, he doesn't know you know where he is uh, half the time. And he's not addressing these these important issues, in particular the border. You know, he'll c- come out every so often and give a statement about inflation or the baby formula shortage or maybe Ukraine. Even that's kind of gone in the background for Biden. Um, but the border, he doesn't talk about it at all. And yet it's it continued to just become worse and worse. And you're absolutely right to mention this connection between the human traffickers, like we saw yesterday, and the drug traffickers, because, of course, the fentanyl and the other opioids that are raking such havoc on our, our people are also coming through the border. I want you to hear Lieutenant Chris Alvarez uh, with Sean Hannity last night. Cut five. There has to be some accountability for what's taking place. And the federal government right now has become complicit in what's taking place right now with these human smuggling events, the loss of life that we're seeing, and the massive loss of life that we saw yesterday in San Antonio, where we see 51 immigrants lose their lives because of human smuggling. And it all goes back to the policies, the policies that were working. Why, why would they cancel those policies? That's the question that needs to be asked when they were effective. And now, because of the fact that they completely canceled all the policies, took away all the tools from the U.S. Border Patrol, the enforcement action from ICE. Now we're seeing the Mexican cartels, the smuggling organizations that are exploiting that and using that to their advantage by 
encouraging these immigrants to make this long, treacherous journey. So, and that's just it. They're saying now's the time to go. We don't know who's coming in next. So we'll see if the House, if the House flips the Republicans and they get the Senate, see if anything changes. I, I, Mayorkas, I, people want to impeach him. Uh, Matt, I just see him as the guy doing what President Biden wants him to, which is nothing. Yes, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, it all goes down to the president, Brian. And this is the, this is the problem when you have a president such as Biden, who is uh, incompetent, um, ineffective, and, and not entirely in control, the whole system gets out of, out of whack. And that's clearly what's happening on the border. I mean, Biden came in on day one and reversed all of the Trump uh, border policies that had successfully bottled up this huge um, mass migration from South and Central America. Um, and what did he expect when he did this? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a consequence of those day one executive orders that he issued uh, last year that we this emergency on the border continues to grow worse. So let's talk about uh, the primaries yesterday. First off, people looked at Glenn Youngkin and suddenly Republicans are thinking if he could go into a blue state that's a little bit purple and win substantially over an established former governor that wasn't considered a disaster in Terry McAuliffe. Why not other states? And remember what almost happened in New Jersey. Murphy almost lost. Nobody thinks New Jersey's red. So if you look at what's happened in New York and Lee Zeldin, a four-time congressman with a military background and Jewish heritage, I'm wondering if you think that this guy might have what it takes to pull off uh, the, to win that, uh, to win the state house for the first time since Governor Pataki. Yeah, I think Zeldin was uh, among those running, probably the most electable candidate, and so the New York Republicans, um, I think, chose uh, correctly in the sense of putting up the challenger best capable, most capable of taking on Hochul. And it's clear too that in 2022 is just a good year to be running as a Republican, no matter where you are, and that includes New York. And I think there's some um, resistance to Hochul's uh, COVID policies and the schools, uh, including in, in throughout the state of uh, New York as well, that Zeldin might be able to capitalize on. The key factor here, Brian, is the president's approval rating, and it continues to decline. Latest political poll just out this morning has him at 39% approval. And there's no way for Democrats, even Kathy Hogel, to escape something like that. Yeah, you wonder if that would split people in the city. And they say about 300,000 people have left New York City. And that's millions of taxpayer dollars since the pandemic and have not come back. And the crime situation, I have to admit to you, I do see a lot of tourist buses, but I don't, you know, the crime has not subsided, even though we have a a very flamboyant mayor now that at least looks like he's trying, even though the numbers don't reflect that he is. So when you look at 2024, stunned to see that story. Essentially, uh, the headline says it all. Joe Biden, his party won't take yes for an answer that he's running again. We are watching Gavin Newsom take out ads in Florida challenging DeSantis. Got an account on Truth Social run by Donald Trump. He thinks he's a national candidate. Oh, he has thought that for some time, and um, I, I think he's not going to sit on um, his approval rating or his reelection in California. I think he's thinking of challenging Biden. I mean, this is when you have an approval rating that low, um, you're going to invite a potential primary challenge, especially when so many of the Democratic elites, Brian, just do not think Biden is up to a second term. The only person who seems to think that Biden's up to a second term is Biden. 
Uh, and that may be enough for him to run again, but it won't be enough to stop someone like uh, uh, Newsom from pr- potentially challenging him. Um, and then I think if one goes, if Newsom goes, then that might uh, get others to follow. So you could have competitive races on both sides uh, of the aisle in 2024. So you look at what happened on January 6th yesterday, uh, the trial with uh, Cassidy Hutchinson testifying. And she said that talked about Trump's demeanor being essentially throwing his plates against the wall, supporting those who were chanting, hang Mike Pence. They say, according to Cassidy, which has not been backed up by the Secret Service, he grabbed the wheel, assaulted, pushed him away, pushed away the Secret Service. They deny that that happened. And she also had other things to say about what was going on in Capitol Hill, how much was planned by Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani. People are making a big deal, uh, big deal of it. Uh, are you? Well, there's no question the Beltway is obsessed with this story, Brian, and every headline uh, and all the major newspapers and the mainstream media is that this uh, testimony yesterday was damning for Donald Trump and potentially could lead to a criminal charge. Um, I, I take a wait-and-see approach. Um, and I also don't think that anything the January 6th committee is doing is going to lead to a uh, rapid deflation of Trump's reputation on the part of Republican primary voters. I will say, though, that for Republican uh, Party elites who want to keep the Trump agenda but find a new spokesman in 2024, uh, what's happening on Capitol Hill is a reminder that, that the, they, they need to find that new spokesman, and Governor DeSantis may be it. And who else would you put uh, in the arena that Matt Continenti would think is a viable, really good, can can attract uh, over 43 percent of the national audience? Well, I think right now DeSantis is the best bet, Brian. We know that former Vice President Pence is um, clearly going to launch a presidential campaign of his own as well. Um, And I think that Pence has a lot of upside, especially among um, social conservatives and evangelical conservatives, and that's why he's been uh, really um, taking the lead uh, on on the abortion issue after the Dobbs decision last week. But um, as far as I look at the field right now, DeSantis is the only one who shows the capacity to really rally the party um, uh, around uh, himself uh, and around a figure who's not named Donald Trump. Do you believe that Trump is running? You know, I, I don't know. Um, and uh, I think that a situation like what's happening on the January 6th committee and the potential decisions that the attorney general has to make about uh, filing criminal charges may affect that. I think Trump's health is always a factor. Um, but ultimately, this is Donald Trump, and um, he's going to make a decision. He may say he's running, but then may not actually do anything. We we just don't know. With Trump, it's always pay, pay little, less attention to what he says and more attention to what he does. Um, Matt, last question on the Ukraine. How does this play out? Leon Panetta came out yesterday with Neil Cavuto and said, Ukraine's got to show it could take back a city. It's got to get on the offensive again. Uh, we are yeah. about to give them a weapon system, a missile defense system. We don't know what other other countries have pledged. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, I'm really worried, Brian, and I agree with Secretary Panetta. Uh, the momentum in the war has not been on Ukraine's side in recent weeks, and uh, we have to see some demonstration uh, that Ukraine can um, arrest the Russian advance in the east and p- potentially turn it back. But here's here's the problem is that I don't think we're helping them enough uh, to do that. And Biden um, has been very lazy in providing this aid. 
and he kind of dribbles it out. He slow walks it. He has all these qualifications to it, and that's hampering the Ukrainian effort to resist this unprovoked invasion. Finally, I, I also don't understand why Biden isn't taking a more proactive approach to restarting the peace talks. I don't, I don't know why we can't uh, have peace talks going on and continue to support the Ukrainians in their national defense. Um, and so what's, what's happened in Ukraine is what's happened on the border, just this drift, this kind of listlessness that continues to pile up in um, the cost, uh, the human toll, and the financial toll, and toll to American security. I hear you. Uh, thanks so much, Matt. A lot to go over as we get to the uh, July 4th weekend. Usually things slow down. People do some features. Not this Not this time. Uh, we keep yeah. going at it. Uh, the 100-Year War for American Conservatism. Uh, go pick it up. Matt, thank you. Thank you. All right. When we come back, we'll take your calls. 1-866-408-7669. Uh, John Levine at the bottom of the hour. We're going to give you the latest on the Hunter Biden story. It links directly back to the president. Man, if they lose the House... The Biden family is not going to understand what's about to hit them. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I did see the statement that was put up by Biden, and the thing that struck me is exactly what you said, and I want to elaborate on it. He said that, that he is doing everything possible to stop human smuggling. That's a lie. Uh, they, he, he has stopped doing everything that had been done to address human smuggling. Uh, he has defunded and, and uh, inadequately funded Border Patrol. He's dismantled uh, ICE. Uh, He has eliminated all of the border security efforts that were put in place by President Trump. It was just a year and a half ago when we had the most secure border in decades. And today we have a worse human smuggling problem than ever before. And that is the governor of Texas exasperated. I don't hear enough from uh, Governor Ducey of uh, Arizona because I hear it's absolutely terrible. Plus, it would turn up Pete uh, Mark Kelly, who does nothing, giving some lip service to it now. It is a travesty against our country. It is absolutely awful that the president of the United States, commenting from NATO, that's how bad it is when people get sizzled alive, probably got embarrassed making a comment. But what's he going to do in terms of a policy? I'll talk about January 6th, Roe v. Wade. But what about this stuff? Here's uh, here's what Chip Roy told uh, Fox News last night, cut for. None of this is new. This is all happening in real time every single day. And Border Patrol's overwhelmed. DPS, Texas law enforcement are overwhelmed. When Ted Cruz, your friend and mine, he and I were in Laredo last September. Look at this. That is a, a truck with bodies in a in a back of a truck that we saw that a scan had come through right when we were coming through in Laredo just last uh, September. This is everyday life in South Texas. And, and, and the, the fact is, Border Patrol is distracted. When I was on the phone yesterday, and the story in the news accounts were coming in of, of 50 dead migrants in the back of a trailer, these people are heartbroken, our law enforcement personnel, because this is the kind of thing they can stop if they're not distracted because they're having to process all of these people because Biden refuses to enforce the law. Yeah, I mean, and what you've done is you've de- you've uh, de-emphasized ICE, you cut back on agents, you cut back on their budget. You have so many people off the border processing people. Seventy percent of all the drugs get through unencumbered. So it all works for other countries to access our border. How long till some criminal comes out and commits one of these mass murders against us? You say, how they get in? Walked right in the border. 
And I just love the way you act like these 51 dead people are something new. You get about five to seven a day that our reporters run over. And by the way, the reporters are basically covering this story by themselves, Fox News reporters. When we come back, John Levine joins us, New York Post writer. He's been talking about Hunter, also talking about the Roe v. Wade and what it means for the red wave. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. That makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There will be an investigation. I can guarantee that. Uh, we have already been uh, conducting a lot of uh, interviews. Uh, we have been conducting a lot of research. Uh, we have combed over the hard drive. We are meeting with former business associates and whistleblowers with respect to Joe Biden, with respect to Hunter Biden and the president's brother. So uh, we're going to be ready to go in January. Uh, and that is an interesting interview you might have missed. It was happened this morning on Fox and Friends first with Congressman James Comer, who could be chairman of the Oversight Committee, talking about what they're going to do about Hunter in light of what just came out this week, which many of which, most of which was in Miranda Devine's book, Laptop from Hell. But it was a voicemail of the president of the United States in 2018 basically saying, hey, I read the Washington Post article. It's probably not going to be that bad about your uh, your political, your business dealings with the Chinese with the Chinese." A billionaire. John Levine joins us now, New York Post writer, right upstairs. Or are you downstairs? We're downstairs. Actually, downstairs. it's a separate elevator bank. Why? Yeah. So I don't know if it's up or down. It needs down. some walking. Yeah. So, so thank you for your commitment to coming in studio, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, the significance of this voicemail, before we play it, what do you think it does for this investigation? Well, I, I generally tend to shy away from terms like smoking gun. But this is the closest, I would say, that we now have to some kind of smoking gun, to, to, to link President Biden to his son's business dealings in a way which he has said forever he's had no involvement in. You know, this is where in 2018, I believe it was a New York Times article that documented this Chinese billionaire looking to make foreign contacts overseas. And one of the people that he targeted was the family of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And it talked about how the Biden family was wined and dined by this individual and Apparently, you know, from this voicemail, we can see that Joe Biden read the article and called his son about the article after it was published and, you know, said, I think you're fine. So there's, there's, there's clearly evidence that some kind of discussion was taking place. You know, how extensive this was and, you know, when Hunter called him back, what did they talk about? These are all questions for a f- subpoena for a future investigation. Right. But when someone comes out and asks you, have you, do you know anything about your, sub, uh, your son's business dealings? We never discuss my son's business dealings. Then there's this voicemail. Hey, Palace Dad. It's 815 um, on uh, Wednesday night. If you get a chance, give me a call. Not, nothing urgent. Just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, is going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, was good. I think it's clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. Right. Nothing urgent, just that international business deal. Right. And you're involved with a guy that's now missing, and your partner would eventually go to jail, Devin Archer, for something unrelated. Yeah. But just shows the depth of his character. 
Uh, it's just unbelievable. But you write about his connection to Russian oligarchs. Yeah, yeah. So in I love, you know, we spent years talking about Trump and Russia and oligarchs and compromat. But, you know, while Vice President Biden, you know, it was serving as vice president in 2012, Hunter was in Russia in February for two, three days of meetings with at least four, you know, Russian oligarchs, billionaire people, people very close to Putin, people in charge of, you know, a massive defense contractor, a massive defense conglomerate, I'm sorry, and um, another person who's, who's now wanted for murder in the country, really seedy people that he's just, you know, palling around with. And I kept asking, you know, all these Russia experts, what interest <laughs> would these billionaires have in this, in this basically this, this drug addict? This prostitute, <laughs> prostitute loving, yeah. tapes everything. A prostitute loving, he's in debt, which turns out later he has to borrow money from his dad, yeah. who loves crack, crack and prostitutes, and not much money. What is the attraction, and why right. is the family letting Hunter Biden lead the financial charge for international business deals? Right, right, exactly. What, and then, by the way, by the way, two or three, uh, the few days after he comes back home, he has a meeting with Joe Biden right. in, in, the, in the White House. And Jim Biden's not clean either. No, Jim Biden is on is on a lot of these as well. He's you know he's 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 run a lot of his own side deals with Hunter at times, and it's it's just the family business is to capitalize on the name and to sell the name for access. So here's what Kevin McCarthy said last night with Gutfeld, cut forty. It's funny, but it's sad. Mm-hmm. Think about that. It was government. It was social networks. It was newspapers, all saying this was wrong. And then you also had the head of the Intel Committee. Think about this, Adam Schiff. Mm-hmm. This is a guy that gets all the secrets. It sat there and told us this was all farce. You can make a joke. You can say, yeah, I understand why the president thinks his son is the smartest man in the world. He got his father to pay for the hookers. And, mm-hmm. you know, he got... The, he, <laughs> but then he got the whole country to protect him at the same time. Could you imagine if Donald Trump, any one of his kids, did one-tenth or one thing like that? So and when he started, he's not kidding. His father, he says, I'm out of money. And his father sent the money. He used it to get Russian prostitutes. Right, and I'll just dovetail on what Kevin McCarthy said. You know, if if the, if we had a story in the Washington Post or New York Times about about like Eric Trump or Don Jr. taking money from President Trump to buy to pay for Russian prostitutes, like, right. do I even need to finish that sentence? There would be no other story in the there country. Would be a military tribunal, right, <laughs> or Barron, right, uh, for the most part. But I think we can keep Barron out of this. Uh, so, so that's the story with Hunter Biden. He's going to be clearly he's going to be investigated if this happens, and clearly they're going to see where it brings them. Because the Chinese guy has disappeared, I think, still. Yeah, he's, he's disappeared. I mean, he was, he was taken down in a corruption scandal in China. He's in the Chinese pure prison system somewhere. I don't, I don't think we're ever going to really see him again. But um, this will definitely be investigated. And, you know, you mentioned James Comer. He's, he's going to be the head of the House Oversight Committee. And they – one of many investigations that have been promised is a full Hunter Biden investigation. And I think in many ways the news reports you were doing – we're doing at The Post and you're seeing at Fox News and elsewhere – are laying the groundwork for a lot of questions that are going to get asked. So, uh, but the question is, will other people ask them, for example, the people that seem lukewarm on him running again, do they suddenly stop walking away from the story you guys at the New York Post and we hear Fox News have been running down? And do they start saying, you know, it's really kind of interesting, this Hunter Biden. They started doing this like three months ago. This Hunter Biden thing really is com- complex. It's interesting when the Democratic Party now is kind of looking for a way to push Joe Biden off stage. Maybe you will start to see Hunter Biden become a bigger deal in in those circles. And 
What I'll say is I'll defer judgment on that until after the midterms. We'll see what the investigations bring. Uh, Investigative reporter John Levine here from the New York Post. So yesterday, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson uh, was the subject of an an emergency session of the January 6th committee, at which time she gives you an up-close and personal sense, if you were to believe her word by word, of what it was like being the assistant to the chief of staff, Mark Mark Meadows, with access to observe uh, the president on January 6th. What's your takeaway? Well, I, I mean, someone is committing perjury. That's my takeaway, because I don't know if you saw Peter Alexander last night. Tweeted something out. He, you know, let's, what Cassidy said was that she basically, the president wanted to go to the Capitol. The Secret Service wouldn't let him. And then I believe her words were that he lunged at uh, the driver, to grab yeah. the steering wheel. Here it is. Cut 26. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motion towards his clavicles. Bobby Angle, the lead agent that was just referred to, the presidential driver at the time, are prepared to testify under oath to the committee that Hutchinson's testimony is incorrect. Didn't stop everybody from running with it, but this guy said, and if you look at the sketch of a of the beast, you can I don't think you can reach from the back. He doesn't ride shotgun. Right. It, it, we've reached I, I was saying that day, we've reached like the Julie Swetnick portion ah. of, of the January 6th hearings. Michael Avenatti to show up and yeah, yeah. say what he saw. But I mean, so she he was backed up. This is when you mentioned Peter Alexander, Peter Alexander said uh, essentially tweeted out that a source told him the Secret Service will dispute Cassidy's claim uh, that Trump did not assault and did not lunge, period. So someone's lying here. Someone's right. not telling the truth. And these are under oath statements. So I don't I don't know. Right. What is perjury still a crime in this country? I don't know. Uh, yet it seems like that would be another issue of, of what she said. So how much is it where, for example, Mitch, uh, Mick Mulvaney came out and said, I know Cassidy. I believe Cassidy. Mick Mulvaney, the former chief of staff to, to Trump. I, I, I don't know. But, I mean, they both can't be right. Right. Like they, so, John, what do you think the American people do? How much do you think the American people care about this? And how much do you think this is a Washington Beltway story? You can't fill up your gas tank with January 6th committee. Right. I mean, like that. I think that it's a fascinating thing to watch, you know, but at the end of the day, I think what's going to matter to voters is the price of gas and inflation. All that, right. That's it. Uh, we're going to talk about possibly who's going to be running on uh, 2024 on both sides of the aisle. And we come back. John Levine's here. He's with the New York Post uh, writing about Hunter Biden. Uh, also writing about what's happening with this election. The January 6th committee It will be front and center soon. I just would love to have seen a Republican cross-examine, but that didn't happen. There were Republicans there, but not into cross-examining. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show.
breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. She wanted her dad to send them home. She wanted her dad to tell them to go home peacefully. And she wanted to include language that he necessarily wasn't on board with at the time. That was a little bit more of uh, Cassidy Hutchinson talking about Ivanka wanting her dad to to say, uh, call off everybody on the Capitol. A lot of this stuff, as I was listening to it, just reminds me of almost every report in every tell-all book because some of the stuff that Trump recounted to Jonathan Carl and others. John Levine is here uh, New York from the New York Post, and we're just talking about the testimony yesterday. For the most part, she seemed compelling, well-composed, had insight we didn't hear before, but a lot of this stuff we did actually read about and hear about in reporting. We just get the firsthand testimony. Yeah. I mean, January 6th was was terrible. I don't think anyone should sugarcoat what that was. I mean, you know, Trump was Trump lost that election and and brought those people to the Capitol under the false pretense that he had won. And obviously it got out of control. And and, you know, a a woman was killed and many others died in in the melee. And, you know, now a lot of people are in jail. It it was a terrible situation. And I and I and I think there should be consequences and there and there, there people should be held to account. But. You know, I, I don't I don't know that necessarily being a venue for Trump fan fiction, which, you know, I think the hearings have become is necessarily the best place outside Washington. The question is how where it's going because of what else is going on right now. Meanwhile, the president of the United States, who is over in NATO in the G7, uh, they're basically I, I got to give Leon Panetta credit, came out and just said uh, it, if the if Ukraine wants to keep keep getting aid, they got to get on the offense and I thought it was just really interesting because we're pumping money to the right cause, but we always seem late. Here's what he said about what's going on right now with Russia. Cut 20. I think Putin's principal goal here is to try to wear down the allies with this kind of protracted war of attrition and uh, just to kind of continue that war and hope that NATO and our allies will ultimately split apart. That's his aim. And the more it's clear that our allies are going to stick together and uh, continue to press sanctions, continue to provide needed arms, and now reinforce NATO, I think uh, that kind of unity is extremely important to making clear to Putin that uh, his tactics are not going to work. I'm fascinated about what's going on over there. We don't have an up-close personal view, but the Russians can't take on the Ukrainians tight. But from afar, they could just bomb and level cities, and they're starting to make some gains. Right. I think, you know, to what Panetta said, the real issue is is not winning or losing, but what are the consequences of a protracted stalemate? And, you know, I can't help but look at gas prices here and abroad to see that this is the most powerful card that Putin has. If you made a deal with Putin, ended the war tomorrow— and you got the Russian gas flowing again and, and cleared up all the energy disruptions, you'd lower the price of gas around the world a lot, very quickly. You know, and I think that's a very powerful chip that he's playing, and he's banking on on his his uh, stranglehold over over energy prices to to uh, weaken the resolve of NATO and, and the United States. And I think what's really important you brought up, uh, I hope we don't ever buy Russian oil and gas again. I hope that Western Europe understands that they cannot be – on the crack pipe of Nord Stream 1 or 2 right? because you can't count on this, uh, the Russians, because the Russians have one objective. It's to take back and reconstitute the Soviet Union, use the thuggish behavior to push their ways and with their new resources around the world. I remember Trump at the U.N. in 2018 
talking about Nord Stream and and Germany, in particular, their dependence on Russian oil. And I, the Washington Post had this very amusing headline where, oh, Trump is raging about this issue, but the Germans are just smirking. And you know, it's it's sad because. We're not that dependent on Russian oil, but but Europe is, and and it's it's as painful as things are here for us now. It's way way worse in Europe, and it's it's going to be. I it, we should not understate how difficult it will be to keep the Europeans all in this, as, as you know, because they need to drive around too. They have gas. They have. But to they're buy. refiring up coal plants. I think that's pretty interesting. Not that it's good for the environment, but coal is being made, gold plants are being fired up all the time in China, and they're finding other ways to do it. They've lost it. They want to find a way to replace 2 million barrels per day of Russian crude. We could be helping with this, and nobody's better at responsibly pumping and refining oil and gas than America. Right. You know, that's, you know, this administration came in on a Green New Deal kind of platform where we we wanted to move investments away from fossil fuels. And obviously now we're in a pinch and we could could use that extra investment that we moved away, and 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 I, I know that we are starting to ramp up there, but it you can't just flip a switch, and it's very difficult to get oil companies to invest when it's like, well, we need the oil now, but uh, when this is all over, we we want to get rid of you. Right. And I believe Granholm said that, or, or one Biden administration official might have been on CNN and said, in the same breath, we need oil companies to ramp up production, but at the same time, we also want them to know that this is only for right now, and. After this is over, we're going to go back to no more oil. And it's like, well, why should I invest in that? But, John, you saw the perfect symbolism, which was basically he decided to go meet with the wind executives instead of the oil executives who were meeting uh, oddly at the same time in Washington. And with Granholm was just giving uh, giving rhetoric and he was talking about how great windmills are. One of his announcements on Saturday, sadly, I was actually there for it. He came in and said. We're really happy with some of these clean projects. Like, for example, we're going to have solar panels going up in Angola. Excuse me? Between everything going on in the world, I don't need to know about – almost like a joke, solar panels in Angola. Right. We're worried about Angola eating because the there's no passageway for grain to leave Ukraine. Right. You know, it's sad. You know, I – I want. I, I. I wish solar panels were the answer. I wish windmills were the answer. I wish should be part of the answer. Right. I. Yeah. I think. I think really when it comes to energy and the growing population in the world, you, you really need an all of the above approach. Right. So. So you know. You, but you can't. I wish we could just put up windmills and replace all coal and oil, but right. we just the technology doesn't exist for that yet. Which I find amazing is not that I know the history of. European energy, but they are ahead of us in terms of green and awareness. They want the solar panels out of their valleys because it's taking away from the illustrious look it has. And the windmills, also nobody wants them to be able to see these windmills. Yeah. So not only you don't want oil and gas, it's terrible, but you don't want to see the windmills. Right. And you don't want to see solar panels. Everyone's trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too. I mean, Trump famously didn't want windmills at his outside his golf course in Scotland right. off the coast. Well, you, he, you know, he fought them at Trump Turn, um, not Trump Turnberry, and yeah, Trump Turnberry in Scotland. Thanks, John Levine. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, coming to you from 48th and 6th, but heard around the country, around the world, especially in the Ukraine. 
Bottom of the hour, uh, Martha McCallum will be joining me. Host of the story, did a great job on Fox News Sunday. Harold Ford is waiting on deck. And, of course, today the president continues with his overseas trip. Uh, he has a bilateral meeting with the Turkish president, Erdogan, a despicable character where I can't late wait to leave the world scene. But he has green-lighted two admissions to NATO, Sweden and Finland, which is terrible news for Russia and great news for us. Meanwhile, Governor Abbott will provide a border security update after the horrific deaths of 51 would-be illegal immigrants in the back of an 18-wheeler. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Turkey lifting its veto on Finland and Sweden's NATO ambitions. The traditionally neutral Nordic countries now one step closer to joining the Western Military Alliance. Finland and Sweden now one step closer to joining NATO. We'll see what's happening over the Ukraine as many are clamoring for some type of success from Zelensky's crew. Number two. Are we ready to fire Kathy Hochul? This November, in the state of New York, one-party rule will end. Kathy Hochul will get fired. We will restore balance and common sense to Albany again. Hopefully, we'll see. Lee Zeldin uh, is uh, somebody who does get the nomination on the Republican side to take on Kathy Hochul. Meanwhile, Joe, your party may be over. I mean, your party may be over you as they are looking for and looking at different options because of the way you've handled different crises, policies, and more. Number one. These people who lost their lives, they did so because President Biden has uh, empowered and emboldened the cartels to do exactly uh, what you saw happen. Unbelievable. Governor Greg Abbott, it took a mass tragedy now for even President Biden to finally pay attention to the border after the death of 51 in a tractor trailer. The problem for the president, will the attention with the attention comes the scrutiny and indirectly, it looks like he is responsible for every loss of life. Uh, joining us now, former congressman from Tennessee turned uh, co- uh, five co-host and everything else, Harold Ford. Harold, welcome back. Brian, thanks for having me on, brother. First off, uh, I want to talk about your column in The Wall Street Journal. You, you said there you have a plan for President Biden to, to get, our, get our economy back on track, leading, of course, with energy. And it looks nothing like the president's been talking about. But you're talking about, it for the short term, going back to oil and gas. But how? Well, I think in the short term and intermediate term, um, conditions and circumstances make you, make you adjust. And obviously what we're confronted with in uh, and, and the geopolitical challenges and the, uh, and the, and the spawning of energy, energy challenges in, in Europe and around the globe, it's, it's caused us to sort of think differently about it. It should cause us to think differently about our transition to a cleaner uh, energy economy. Look, I'm committed to uh, uh, that, that kind of economy and that kind of energy economy in particular. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. Uh, we remain uh, reliant in many ways on, on fossil fuels. So the piece I wrote for the journal was just to say that to the administration that we've got to be broader thinking here. We can't be captive to uh, one, one line of thinking, which means uh, the abundance of energy products we can produce in the United States. We should continue doing that. As, as, and that does not mean we should not continue pursuing with the same vigor uh, a cleaner energy economy as well. So my advice to them was to do – was to reverse some of the policies, to reverse Keystone, uh, to 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 provide some certainty to our oil and gas companies around the leases uh, and around refining. And I think that Secretary Granholm met with some of the energy company uh, heads, I think, over the last week or so, and they made some recommendations to her, including 
allowing them to use, uh, you know, the crude that is uh, normally used in colder months and warmer months, which might help reduce uh, the cost of, of gasoline for, for families. Remembering, Brian, my only reason in wanting to do this at this point is that we have consumers, middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class consumers, and when I say consumers, we mean Americans, who are suffering at the pump. Uh, and anything we can do to help alleviate that, um, within reason, we should be doing that. Right. Uh, so I think most people understand that. But among the other con- uh, Democratic Congress, uh, Democratic members of the Democratic Party, do you think anybody you've talked to with the administration feels as though they're prepared to do something like that? They would alienate the squad and people to the left of what we thought the president was? Do you think this has struck a nerve? Well, well, I don't. I think my voice is one of a chorus of voices. I mean, Senator Manchin, Senators Manchin and Kelly, uh, Mark Kelly from Arizona, have been advocates, uh, have been proponents of this kind of approach. And I think there are other. There, there are certainly others. We we sometimes amplify the voices of, of the squad, but there are other, certainly many Democrats in the House and the Senate who believe much like I do that. Again, we're not saying uh, divorce ourselves from pursuing a, a clean energy strategy or clean energy platform for the country over the next many years. 10 years, 15 years, whether it's five years or 15 years or 20 years, uh, we shouldn't put the American consumer and the American household uh, through un- unnecessary, particularly avoidable pain if, if, we can, uh, if, if we can do that. And I think we can. We can do both. We, we just don't have to. We don't need to. We don't just have to do one. Uh, I know. I've, and I hear you. I'm just wondering if it will resonate with the administration that would hopefully care more about leadership and doing the right thing than the politically correct thing, being that you're 39 percent approval rating. Does that also free you up to say how much lower can it go anyway? It's not like you're playing with the perfect game, Harold, if you're the president. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that that approval ratings and polls are you can't agree with them when they're good for you and disagree with them when they're bad for you. This White House doesn't seem to be bothered by some of some of the polling uh, in pursuit of some of the things that it wants. And I, I think that it just, you just need some different thinking around, around the table, around this issue. Uh, and, uh, uh, uh you know, I, I was encouraged also just your some of one of your stories around, uh, Sweden and Finland, but I was equally encouraged to hear president Zelensky talk about perhaps a, a, a resolution to this, to this, uh, to this war by the end of the year, which I don't know what it, how that looks or what that looks like. I do hope that it, it means we're going to repel Russia, uh, and certainly not allow them to have parts of that country. But, you know, I, I don't live in Ukraine, and uh, I certainly uh, 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 don't have any in, insight into how the leaders are thinking there. But I do know the impact that it's having uh, on the globe and do know the impact it's having on energy prices. But that, shouldn't dis- that, that too, should not dissuade the administration from thinking about uh, new energy strategies and new energy policies, and I hope they do that. So how do you explain – the president being euphoric, according to the New York Times story, when Bernie Sanders came out and said, I'm not running. He's 82. And he said, invite him to the White House that night. And the story is and reads out that the president doesn't understand why the Democratic Party won't take yes for an answer. What's the story in Democratic circles? I mean, does the president not realize his performance has not been strong and people are really un- are very unforgiving since Afghanistan? Is there a disconnect there? Well, I think anytime you, you someone says they're not going to run against you, I don't care which party you're in. If, you, if you're going to not have an opponent in the primary, particularly as a president, you are probably relieved. And the history of presidents who have 
meaningful uh, primary opposition uh, uh, who are running for reelection, it's not a good record. From uh, from, from Carter to H. W. Bush, when you have those kinds of primary op- opponents, you, you generally uh, you generally don't win in the fall. So I'm sure he does not want that that kind of energy being spent uh, in division uh, over the summer, uh, uh, this summer, fall, and even even next year. Uh, I think some of the talk, Brian, around people running against him, I think, you know, Democrats, um, you know, we're a restless group at times. And I think that people are rightly so concerned about the direction of the country and want to see a, a White House that is stronger and more definitive at all times. And this is not to suggest that this White House is not strong and definitive on a lot of issues. I do, I do think there's some frustration around inflation and crime in the border. I do think as we, you know, you see the recall of some some of these DAs around the country, or particular the one in San Francisco and the efforts in, in other parts of the country. When you see the race in Texas, uh, the, the Republican uh, beating the Democrat in a largely Hispanic district on the border there. I think it causes people in the party to think about our policies as it should. Uh, just like in Texas, I know that uh, Governor Abbott and, and some of the, the, the Department of Public Safety, they're having to think long and hard about how they protect and fortify schools and their protocols around it. So I hope everybody learns from these things. And so I'm not surprised that some Democrats are talking about challenging the president. Some are on the record, off the record, saying that he is uh, that, that he's going to be a, a up in age and they're worried about I mean, I'm not an ageist. But I, but I do think that if I were in the White House and I were, I were chief of staff, the thing I'd be most focused on is trying to get the policies right. Because if the policies are right, people aren't concerned about age. And, and as, as you and I've talked before, and, and on how, air and off Harold, air. But, they're not, but they haven't. They've been slow on everything, even this weapon system going to Ukraine. We're going to buy a weapon system for, for the Ukrainians from Norway. Okay, why not two months ago? They needed a weapon system before this. It, it's... The incremental reactionary way in which they half-ass and do things makes me feel as though he's been totally let down by his inner circle, starting with his chief of staff. Well, look, I'm not close enough, and I'm going to prejudge where you are. I'm not close enough to the national security questions that they're facing and, for that matter, the data and evidence they're getting. I'm like you. I, I have believed for a while that we should have been a little faster in providing things. But but, but I think when you when you really look back and you think about where we are and the unity we still have there, the fact that uh, the Russians who thought they were going to run right in there and, and, and take that place over, I think you got to give the administration and this president a few higher marks than perhaps some do. But I, I, don't, I don't disagree with your, tendon, your, your instinct uh, there, Brian. I, I, I do hope we give them what they need. I've been on record saying every piece of technology uh, and every weapon system that, that's, that's feasible yeah. we should be providing them to protect themselves, they, they being the Ukrainians. Well, I'd just real quick before you go. Can you give me the matchup with Zeldin and Hochul? Hochul, somebody who's not run this office, many people think one of the weaker candidates that Democrats have put forward. It's really been Cuomo and Pataki over the last, I don't know, 20 years. So now looking at Hochul and Zeldin, the four-time congressman who you probably are very familiar with, he's got a military background, he's Jewish, which could win over the Jewish community or have a shot win the Jewish community in Manhattan. What do you think the chances are in a time in which Many people think Republican Democrats are vulnerable. Do you see this being a close race right now? Well, I think that Democrats and Governor Hochul have to take it very seriously, and I know that she is. Um, I think that that issues will matter in this race, uh, from choice for women, from from the gun legislate, from the gun verdict down from the Supreme Court. I think that Mr. Zeldin's going to have to be on the record on those things, and voters are going to have an opportunity to react. There's no doubt. Brian, I think your larger point, there's a climate uh, in New York uh, that wants, uh, rightly so, that wants a safer New York, that wants a more prosperous New York. 
And I think these candidates are going to have to speak to that. Uh, but I wouldn't discount uh, Governor Hochul at all. She's proven to be uh, not only resilient, uh, but it's proven to be pretty resourceful and wild. Uh, and if I were Governor Hochul, I would not just rely on the fact that New York has been a heavily Democrat state. It has. But I think we live in unique times. So it's going to it's going to it's going to be a, an interesting race, a close race. And, but I would put my chips on Governor Hochul's chances of winning if I, if I was forced to make a bet. And that's right. who I'm voting for. All right. Harold Ford, thanks so much. We'll see you in the five tonight. Thanks, brother. All right. Yeah, I'm filling in for Greg. So I'll see. I actually will see him uh, be on the five. Uh, Martha McCallum coming up next. Brian Kilmeade show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Do you think that you'll have President Biden come and campaign with you in that district? I I intend to do the campaigning myself. I am the candidate. It's my name on the ballot. And I plan on um, engaging voters across our 11 localities, some of them new to me, some of them communities I've represented already. Abigail Spanberger just says, you notice how the traffic the president will probably have to go through in order to campaign for me in Virginia. I'll just do it myself. Martha McCallum here, host of the story. Martha, a lot of people running themselves, uh, running away from the president. 39% approval rating last thing in. I thought, you know, Ford's Quinnipiac's 33%. I guess we had a 41%, 42%. But if you're, an, if you're a so-called moderate, which many people don't think she is, do you want the president campaigning for you? I don't see how it's a plus, you know, at this point. It's inter- I asked Stacey Abrams that question on Sunday, and she said yes. She's the first person I've heard, you know, sort of right. straight out. She said, "Yeah, oh, yes, of course, we'd welcome him mm. to campaign with us in Georgia. Um, it is, it, it's, you know, I mean, he's under so underwater on everything, on foreign policy, on inflation, on the gas prices. And he just, he's not, I don't know how great a campaigner he is at this point. I was just watching him speaking in Spain and it's the kind of thing where you read what he said, you go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you watch him say it and he's just so, so low energy. I mean, obviously it's a big trip. He's been traveling a long time, but that, this is what we see a lot of. So I'm not sure you want him on the campaign trail. Yeah. I mean, that's where they make Red Bull. I mean, that's why they put it together. (laughs) Uh, He read right off the card too. I mean, he's reading right off the card. I know. And what about the exchange? In fact, you know what? Just Jack yeah, Keane says something about that this morning with how it's so required of the president of the United States right now to be persuasive on Ukraine. And he said, you know what? He needs to be able to go in there and talk to these leaders, not on a car, not off a card, and convince them where he stands. You would think. Uh, here's Emmanuel Macron telling the president something you think they would have gone over months ago, but yet we get a chance to see it. Cut 18. Sure. You, I, you, you predicted it for a while. So with that was is Macron walking up and saying, uh, I talked to MBZ and I talked to Saudi Arabia. They basically are maxed out on their royal production, so we can't expect to ask them to do more. And Jake Sullivan interrupts, I think we should step aside because the cameras. I mean, this, would you, is, is that such the, a weird exchange all the, around, honestly? First of all, yes. I mean, I read that about Saudi and UAE capacity in an oil report like a month ago. I mean, yeah. that, that's not new information. Right. You don't need to be the president of France and interrupt. To, to have talked to. Yeah, and he, he sort of, they're all moving, you know, 
all these world leaders moving from one place to another, kind of scrambles over, catches up to him, taps him on the shoulder. Mr. President, I want to make sure you know this before you go. I mean, what what do you think Macron was trying to establish there? I, I just find right. it an I find it an interesting. You think that he was caught? Was by, he but, trying to make the president look bad? I, I I don't know. Well, do you remember the was it last year the G seven when the last Trump's last one when they were kind of just talking about Trump that he wouldn't end his press conferences? Yes. Remember all three of them were there. They didn't understand. It's very clicky. Yeah. And they all <laughs> and like they a, don't, don't like Americans. It, exactly. It, yeah. Um, no, I thought that was a very odd exchange. And also the president appeared to have no idea what he was talking about. I don't know. He may have well known what he was talking about, but just the look on his face did not look like he was registering what they were so talking imagine, about. So imagine that. Don't tell me the answer. I'm going to go to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> don't tell me ahead of time what they're going to say, but I'm going to ask him to pump oil more. Keep your fingers crossed. Mr. President, I want to ruin the trip, but if they're already making They don't it, have a lot yeah, more. They don't have a lot more. And we know Saudi Arabia is just about out of oil. We know that. They couldn't possibly uh, pump more. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and the thing oh is, and the symbolism of going to the wind meeting over the oil meeting, that says the whole thing. How can you expect Absolutely. the American people to say you're doing everything you can right. when you don't even go a mile down the road? Yeah. Don't even get me started on wind. I mean, these windmills that they want to build up and down the Atlantic Ocean, they have leased the our Atlantic coastline. They've leased it to foreign companies that are going to drill into the base of the ocean. Not our companies. And build, no, not, not U.S. companies primarily. Uh, and build these enormous windmills that have not really passed any environmental tests in terms of what the impact might be on the, on the ocean. So the people who, when we grew up, everybody wanted to save the whales, right? Right. Those same people who wanted to save the whales are now way in deep with the windmill, like let's rip up the bottom of the ocean, folks. And he said the wind never stops blowing in the middle of the ocean. That's why the Who windmills are right. Joe Biden. Oh, yes. well, he, he would know. He would know. Of course, we all go to the middle of the ocean and go, I cannot believe how windy it is. <laughs> how many times have you said that? It never stops flowing in the middle. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Friday's Supreme Court decision was despicable, but it was not unpredictable. HHS has been preparing for this for some time. This is a critical moment in our history. How we respond will speak to how we view the rights, the dignity, and the well-being of women everywhere. Right. Uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra, another person ill-qualified to have that spot, who just basically disappeared after his coronation. With us right now is Martha McCallum, set to host her show at 3 o'clock today. Uh, first off, so it was despicable, but it was not unpredictable. And we're talking about different ways to get abortions in red states, maybe 10 cities in Yellowstone Park, the Montana Maybe we could put some in Central Park will be no problem. New York will have no problem. Mm -hmm. They'll have a lot of abortions. I think it'll be in our brochure. Come (laughs) to New York, have an abortion. And now for the. I mean, have you ever heard a worse oxymoron than abortion tourism? 
No. I mean, just just think about it, right? I, I got some heat the other day for saying that I thought it was a sad way to promote a state to say, please come here for your abortion. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that's something you're not supposed to say. Really? That abortion is is sad in any way. That's a bad thing to say now, apparently. Right. Um, despite the fact that in 2006, President Biden said every abortion is a tragedy. Right. 2006. And I mean, I remember Clinton 2006. It's not that long ago, right? Um, yes, Bill Clinton said they should be rare. Uh, that You know... In those days, the push was always to educate teenagers, right, to teach them about birth control, teach them about abstention, teach them about ways to make sure that this doesn't happen to you um, so that, you know, so that you don't have to face this very difficult decision. But we don't hear a lot of that kind of talk right now. Anyway, so it makes me wonder, you know, you have to wait five hours in a lot of cases to take off on an airplane these days because the whole airlines are so screwed up. So. I don't know where Pete Buttigieg has been on that problem that has been brewing for quite some time with the rising fuel prices and the labor situation. Then I look at Javier Becerra. I am getting back around to what you were talking about. I look at Javier Becerra. I'm like, okay, you've had three justices appointed to the Supreme Court who have spoken about the fact that they don't believe that Roe v. Wade was correctly decided, that it doesn't have a basis in the Constitution. So despite the fact that they wouldn't come out and say that clearly during their process does not mean that that's not woven into their fabric, just like um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor, you know, ended up becoming justices who were reliably uh, not originalists when it comes to the Constitution. Right. So where has he been? He could have been really making a name for himself, saying, like, I'm setting up these centers. I'm doing this because I just in case this happens, we want to be ready. We yeah. want to be ready. No, they don't. They, no, this nothing. administration's never afraid. They're anything. shocked, 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 which is just ridiculous. But are you surprised that Clarence Thomas is getting so much heat? Here's an example. Hillary Clinton cut 25. I went to law school with him. Mm -hmm. He's been a a person of grievance for as long as I've known him. Resentment, grievance, anger. And he has signaled uh, in the past to lower courts, to state legislatures, find cases, pass laws, get them up. I may not win the first, the second, or the third time, but we're going to keep at it. Women are going to die, Gail. Women will die. So she's known him 50 years ago. He's always been a person of grievance. What about that? What is he? And that many people oh, describe him. Hillary Clinton way. has quite a few grievances. <laughs> um, yeah, she never she, complains. She seems to, no, she doesn't ever complain about, you know, uh, elections that were, she, you know, right illegitimate. Right? Fast yeah. Yeah. So uh, she has grievances as well. I think that, you know, I mean, it all depends on how you look at it, I guess. Right. But uh, I think Clarence Thomas has been enormously consistent in his originalism. Uh, he's always felt that there was not a protection in the Constitution for an abortion and that it should be something that's decided by the states. And this is the thing that we have to keep coming back to. And a conversation like that between Gail King and Hillary Clinton, nobody's going to talk about the fact that in many states, nothing will change. Right. Mm-hmm. So the places where you're seeing the biggest protests are in states where it's not going to change. But, yes, Clarence Thomas has been a favorite target all of these years, he speaks his legal and constitutional thinking on right. all of these issues, and he should be obviously allowed to do so without being vilified. Well, he is like I've never seen before, and I, I worry about his welfare. I worry about all their welfare. Absolutely. With the crazies. No, we live in such a such a tenterhook society right now. I agree with you 100%. And believe me, if anything happens to these justices, you know that Chuck Schumer is going to call in a media conference and replace him with uh, Merrick Garland. Who knows? So in two seconds, it'll it'll work towards the assailant's cause, oh, perhaps. Gosh. I don't even want to say that. Yeah, yeah. but I'm um, just saying that if you you saw what happened with Kavanaugh, the president never even seems to have uh, acknowledged, acknowledged it. it. 
But Hillary Clinton in particular did not uh, did not eliminate possibly running for office again, although in the past she has said that. Do you th- why do you think she's speaking so much now? I don't know. Juan Williams wrote a piece on her the other day saying that she's the person who needs to step into this void and address the issue of Roe v. Wade being overturned, that she has the credibility, she has the voice on it, it has to be her. I think that says something in and of itself about the president and the vice president, that, that you know, that Juan would go right past the two of them and say it needs to be someone who ran for president twice and didn't get elected. Um, so I, 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 I don't see her running again. I think that, uh, you know, when we talk about grievances, uh, I think she's got, you know, a closet full of them from trying to be president several times and failing. Here is her deflecting with Gail King. Cut six. There's no scenario in 2024 that you would <laughs> even remotely consider. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't imagine it. I really can't. I, but what I don't know. Well, but what I can't imagine is staying as active and outspoken as I can, because I think I think our country is really on the precipice. Wow. Easily could have kicked that to the the curb. She didn't. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, we see politicians play this game all the time, right? I mean, I think just for your own ego, you don't want to close the door forever. I'm sure she loves that people are still asking her to get involved again. Um, You know, remember that whole interview and video she did about what would have been her acceptance speech if she had won and (laughs) And she she read it and cried? So, no, I think she would – I think she'd be much more upset if people stop asking her the question. So in New York, uh, before we take a break and want to find out – Hey, uh, Peter, are we going to have more to know? We are. I hope okay, so. good. Yeah, so. Before, always more to know, folks. And I'm going to give plenty of time this time. Because uh, you and Hammer, I only gave you like 90 seconds. It really. I know. Did he not do well last time? You didn't invite him back? He was terrible, yeah. He was <laughs> awful. I don't, I don't really like him. And I, I'm glad to tell He's you this. He's on vacation. Oh, that was it? I hope we can do that again. Yeah, that was All fun. right, because I wanted to act like it was my decision, which shows how shallow I am. <laughs> um, so in New York, uh, Lee Zeldin wins the nomination. Uh, Andrew Giuliani come, falls in behind him. He had a lot of support in Staten Island and other places. Here is Andrew Giuliani vowing to support Lee Zeldin. Cut 11. It was a tough fight, but when I spoke to Lee at the very beginning of this, I told him we were going to be working together, hopefully God willing, for the next 50 years to make this state a better place. For his children, for my child, for all of our kids. And it is so important that over the next four and a half months all that right. we all work. So he said, my point was, we're all going to work together. So Giuliani, Astorino, and the others. And the question is, is there enough support in New York to get somebody like Lee Zeldin, who's got a lot of experience, to get a real serious run at Hochul? You know, I, I asked, I was on Gutfeld the other night, and Andrew Giuliani, this is the night before the primary, was also on. And I asked him that. Um, and he said, you know, it, it feels like this is sort of a Pataki moment in New York State where you could get the kind of support that would be needed to put a Republican in the governor's house. I, I mean, that people are very upset about what's going on in New York City, the crime levels, and all over the state, inflation, all of it. So I do think that there's an opportunity for Lee Zeldin. I think it might be a, a a close and interesting race to watch. And I also think, you know, good for Andrew Giuliani for saying, you know, I'm going to support Zeldin. He's he's young. He's an up-and-comer. And, uh, you know, he could have a future in New York. Right. Um, this time in which you think his dad would help him, I think his dad hurts him. 
Could be. Um, it's funny because uh, I don't know how it came up during Gutfeld, but they talked about, you know, pe- parents grounding kids. Oh, it was because Ben Affleck's son, you know, hit the Lamborghini in the rental uh, parking lot. At eight years old. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I used to get grounded all the time. And I was like, let's go back to that. I want to hear more about when Rudy grounded you. I was like, <laughs> the, maybe around the first inaugural address. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember him dancing <laughs> in the background. He said, you know what? My dad wasn't mad at me, but my grandmother was really mad. He <laughs> said, you know, the Italian grandma, she wanted that to be my dad's moment. And she said, I ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> you can Google that if you don't remember what happened there. All right. So listen, when Martha McCallum comes back, we're going to find out what's on her show and if she needs to know more. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmead. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, so all this stuff is happening while we have a dead man as president. You know, it's it's just. Um, are you it's throwing not, out any um, fun. any support towards anyone? Or are you going to hold off and? Uh, I know, didn't Elon Musk uh, come out recently for DeSantis? Yeah, yeah, I think Ron DeSantis would work as a good president. I feel like what he did for Florida, a lot of people gave him a lot of grief, but ultimately he was correct. He was correct when it comes to like deaths. He was correct when it comes to protecting our vulnerable populations. He was correct in terms of distribution of monoclonal antibodies. And he was furious when the government tried to pull those. They were trying to pull very effective treatments. You know, he is not perfect. He's a human being. But um, what he's done is stand up for freedoms. So that is uh, Joe Rogan talking about Ron DeSantis. Remember, Joe Rogan voted for Bernie Sanders. So Joe Rogan took it about Ron DeSantis, and Joe Rogan ran from California, by the way, they, they, between the taxes and COVID-19 policies. And Ron DeSantis was right, and they did take away the monoclonal antibodies. He hasn't gotten them back yet. Martha McCallum here, Martha. Did you – I mean, Rogan talking about that. What did he say that's incorrect? Nothing. I mean, and, and he's a part of that very interesting vote, right, that Bernie Sanders sort of libertarian group that – ended up supporting the policies of, of President Trump and, and now support DeSantis. So I think they're going to be a very interesting block to watch as we go forward. And I think, obviously, DeSantis is uh, the most viable candidate because I think that he would energize the Trump voter in a way that nobody else out there else might at this point. But it's very early. A lot is going to change between now and then. And I'm just wondering if there's anything more. Wait, before we do this, who's in your show today? So we're three gonna o'clock. T- yeah. So we're going to talk to Ben Carson. Uh, we're going to talk to um, Brian Kemp. I interviewed Stacey Abrams right. on Sunday. So I said, you know, let's have Brian Kemp on to get the other side of the governor's race in Georgia. So we're going to talk to him. And Chad Wolf is going to join us on this, which is just getting worse by the moment. This horrific, horrific uh, death of all of these people in this tractor trailer on the border in San Antonio, Texas. It's up to 53 now dead. Uh, let's find out if there's even more for Martha to know. More to know. All right. Martha, go. Americans are headed into an ugly 4th of July travel weekend with 1,800 flights canceled already this week with days left to go. Um, Yeah. My daughter scheduled a flight and I was like, okay, that's smack in the middle of the day when everyone's leaving for the weekend and your return is when everyone is coming back. So just bring a good book. Bring a good book and and just look at your app. It's going to be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, And also, another thing they do now with, with travel, they'll tell you, okay, you're four hours late. And all of a sudden you'll see a message. No, it's ready. I know. So you cannot... When they first tell you you're delayed, you still got to get to the airport on time. Because they'll choke up on it again I real know, quick. I know, and then you get to your gate, and it's like, oh, sorry, it's, uh, gate C8. 
You know, right. That's on the <laughs> other side of the airport. Exactly. Uh, I don't even know if you should swipe because this is a similar story. Swipe anyway, Eric. Washington, San Francisco, New York, among the worst-run cities in America. Uh, the D.C. ranks as the worst-run big city in the entire country. We have 150 big cities. San Francisco, California, New York City ranks second, third, worst, respectively. All three finished at the bottom of the list in terms of total budget per capita. We're also tying for the largest amount of long-term outstanding debt per capita. In Washington, high school graduation rates are now the fourth lowest. In San Francisco, it's also home to the worst quality roads. In New York, uh, they call it the big toilet. Uh, although recent reports continue to document the city's rising crime rate, New York still managed to finish 12th in terms of safety. But that's what we're looking at in New York, a reason why people are running for the hills. You know what? It's the, it's the great American decline. And we live in an environment now where efficiency and excellence and performing at your best in anything you do has disintegrated. And I think COVID also put a big dent in that kind of mindset. Um, there's a number of things that, you know, have, have had an impact on that kind of thinking. And I think you just see it rippling through. Government doesn't function the way it should. Businesses don't function the way they should. It's it's really, it's a sad story. Right. I think also people who have great work ethics and don't go on to get vaccinated are getting fired. That's ruining industries. A lot to do with what we're seeing with Army, Navy, Absolutely. Marines, what we're seeing with pilots, we're seeing with flight attendants. With, Jovac, uh, with uh, Djokovic. And with tennis players. Exactly. Tennis stars. Novak um, Djokovic. Right. Yeah. Uh, next. You. Go. What are they? Oh, God. Yeah. St- I forgot how this works. A staggering so 80% of the U.S. population her? has either low or moderate cardiovascular health, meaning one in five people have a heart that's in excellent shape, according to a new study. That's not good. It's, it's not good. Is that? I, I like to see it compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, that's part of the reason why we we all should, as a country, decide to eat better. And Everyone, don't you don't you think during COVID nineteen that was an opportunity for both Trump and Biden to say, guys, get healthy. Right. The best thing you could do while we figure out the vaccine, let's start eating right. Get rid of the fatty yeah, foods. Yeah, you're so right. They should have had like a national program where everybody's going to get in there fifteen thousand steps a day. You know, during yeah. COVID, like yeah. get outside and get do healthy. something positive. That would have been a great idea. Right. I wish I was president. Instead, it was just so everyone just got depressed and uh, overweight. Right. I'm stuck in this dead-end job instead of running the country. <laughs> I feel bad for myself. Next, lung cancer treatment for dogs may also work for humans. Can we find this out, please? A study showed that 21 pet dogs who developed uh, lung disease for bone or skin cancer, the team treated dogs with this something unpronounceable, Cidricine interleukin-15, which is abbreviated LIL-15, which scientists believe benefits immunology, However, LI-15 treatments in humans are sparse because some doses carry highly toxic risks. So there's something there. Mm-hmm. So it might be too toxic for humans, but it's, it's curing dogs. Can we work on this? What do you think about chemotherapy for dogs? You know, I mean, because I've had a lot of friends who get into that position and then you have to make decisions about spending thousands and thousands of dollars. How old is the dog? Yes, well, that would be a factor. Right. Yes. Um, and I think just how we old... We all love our dogs. We don't right. want them to go away. But right. But anyway, I mean, that was the thing that I kept thinking about while you were saying that. But yes, it's true that we would like to extrapolate from those dog studies and see if we can save human beings as well. Right. Thank you for and that. And all for saving human beings. So we agree. Beings. Yes, we do. You're pro-saving human beings from cancer. Absolutely, I'm pro that. Who says you're not on the opinion side of things? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I have an opinion about that. So uh, a nuclear-powered flying hotel promises to keep your head permanently in the clouds. The high-flying sky cruise concept sees a gigantic airplane 
uh, into a cruise ship that could be constantly airborne. Developers envision 5,000 guests arriving by passenger planes that with that dock with it. I'm trying to picture that. You mean so we're going to fly our own planes? It's yeah, it's a flying hotel that's sort of like a cruise ship that's in the air and it's nuclear powered apparently. I, I, I get nervous about cruise ships because I just I just want the option to get off. You, that's true, but I it always want that, the option to leave. And they don't give you that, exactly. except for there are lifeboats. But you're usually in the, middle of the ocean, <laughs> and we know how windy it is in the middle of the ocean. Exactly, because uh, that's why you have those big. But by the way, out don't there. we have that already? Isn't that called the Hindenburg? Wasn't that the big <laughs> restaurant in the sky that burned up? I don't think there was a restaurant in the Hindenburg. I think it was just... Um, Pete, would you look it, that up? It, it was, was an there, enormous was, blip. Was, I think there was oh, a Wendy's. Oh, the humanity. Yeah, I think there was a Wendy's. Oh, there was not. Next, three, 63% of people get nervous when their partner drives. They surveyed 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. The question is, Martha McCallum, do you get nervous when your partner drives? No, I, I don't. I get. I don't love driving with my kids in the driver's seat because they are good drivers, but I always feel like they're going to take off the mailboxes on the right-hand side. Right. You know? Um, I prefer to be in the driver's seat, honestly. Uh, my husband's a very good driver, though. How about you? Um, my partner does not like when I drive. She doesn't. <laughs> From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.